Matthew 4, just to set the context a little bit of where we are. Jesus is beginning his ministry. Chapter 3, he's baptized by John the Baptist. He comes up out of the water and he's led into the wilderness for where, where for 40 days as he's fasting and praying, Satan assaults him, tempts him. And every time our Lord and Savior is faithful, he remains true. He never yields one inch to sin. He rebukes the devil with the word of God. As he comes out of the wilderness, he enters into the northern part of Israel, Galilee. And he does this according to Matthew chapter 4 to fulfill the prophecy. The prophecy from Isaiah that out of the northern part of Israel, Galilee, Zebulun, the light would come, the Messiah would come. So Jesus begins his ministry there. He begins preaching. Verse 17. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. God's kingdom's here. Turn to him. Come to Him. Now's the time. Now we pick up in verse 18. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, He saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And He said to them, Follow Me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James the son of Zebedee and John his brother, in the boat with Zebedee their father, mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately they left their boat and their father and followed him. Would you bow with me and let's pray. Oh, Father, give us ears to hear you this morning. The same call that came from the lips of Jesus that day in Galilee is the same call issued today. Incline our hearts to obey, O oh Lord. Open our ears spiritually that we may hear you calling us to follow you and you are going to make us fishers of men. Grant this, Father, I pray in the name of Jesus, my Savior. Amen. Now, I want to begin with a little bit of a riddle. I want you to think about what these two things have in common. The first is an event that took place in June of 1997. It was game five of the NBA Finals. The Chicago Bulls, led by Michael Jordan, were playing the Utah Jazz. And what Michael Jordan did in that game is something that has become a part not only of NBA history, but of NBA legend. In that game, Michael Jordan scored 38 points, he had 7 rebounds, and he made 5 steals. Now that within itself really doesn't amaze us because we think that's Jordan. If anything, we may say, well, he had kind of an off night, didn't he? But the amazing thing is what was going on when he did that. You see, when Michael Jordan scored those 38 points and grabbed those seven rebounds and three steals, he had the flu. He literally went in at halftime and received an IV. The flu. I don't know if you've ever had the flu, but I don't feel like walking, let alone playing in an NBA game. That's the first item. Second item is this. 
a laser beam. Now, very simply put, a laser beam is light that is focused on a central point. Radiated light focused on a central point, taking light that if it's diffused may illuminate a room, and you bring it together in a way that is centered on one point, and that light has the ability to cut through metal. So the question, what does a basketball star that has the flu scoring 38 points have in common with a laser beam? Give up? Focus. Both show the power of what can happen when you are focused. Focused to overcome an illness, to attain a high level of achievement, and one focused instead of being diffused and spread out on one central point. Today, I want us to talk about being focused followers and fishermen for Jesus. Because it is so easy in our day and age where there are so many things going on, when there are so many things that would distract us, that we try to do so many things that we fail at doing any of them effectively. We have fallen into the myth of multitasking. This idea that we can do multiple things at once. So like we call out and we say, what are you doing? Well, I'm checking my email, I'm walking the dog, and I'm thinking up a new proposal that I'm going to give to my boss all at the same time. You know, researchers have shown that multitasking does not work. In fact, from the National Academy of Sciences, after in, in doing research, they found three things out. Those who rate themselves as multitaskers make more mistakes in what they do. Second thing, they remember fewer things. And number three, it takes longer for them to complete multiple tasks, whereas if they had focused on one at a time, they would have accomplished more over a longer period of time. I'm afraid as Christians, we try to multitask. So today we come back to this central call, the simplicity of the faith. And it's found, I think, in this call of some fishermen to follow Jesus. Because you could really bring what it means to be a Christian down to this simple thing. It is to be a follower and a fisherman. Now, I did not err grammatically when I said this thing, and then I mentioned two things. Because they're really one. Notice in this text, there's no distinction between the two. To be a follower of Jesus is to be a fisher for men. And if you are a fisher for men, that is an indication that you are a follower of Jesus. They are not two separate things. They are part of the same thing. What does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? Well, I want you to know that this call to follow begins with Jesus Christ. This is one of those moments that to those who first heard this rabbi walking around the Sea of Galilee call out to men to follow him, they would have been shocked. But the uniqueness of it is lost upon us because we're used to the idea of recruiting. You want somebody for something, you go, you recruit them. But a rabbi in the time of Jesus did not recruit followers. If anything, the rabbi would be teaching and people would come to the rabbi and they would say, would you enroll me in your school? Would you let me be your disciple? Would you let me follow you? So a rabbi would not do what Jesus does here. 
Jesus is shocking, scandalous because he issues the call. You, I want you to be my follower. You follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And it's very interesting that throughout this text, it is filled with past tense phrases until you get to verse 19. Even though the English translated, he said, the Greek reads, he says to them. It is present tense. And I think that Matthew is emphasizing the ongoing nature of this call to follow and to be fishers. It is not a once and done thing. It is a continual call coming today, coming to us. We never get over this call to be followers and fishers of men for the sake of the gospel. That reminds us that this is not just for the early disciples. We can't back, sit back and say, well, the earlier disciples, they were called to be fishers of men. I'll be a follower, but I'm not going to be a fisher. We cannot create Christianity a la carte. Now, that's hard for us today because we're used to getting what we want. We go to a restaurant, well, I want the steak, but I don't want a baked potato. Can you replace it with this? And I think sometimes we do Jesus the same way. Lord, I want that peace and that joy and eternal salvation I don't know about that witnessing part. Could I replace that with more joy? Lord, I want to serve you, but I, I just get nervous about witnessing. So could I replace that witnessing part? Let's see, how about a little bit more love? Give me that instead. Jesus does not give us that option. The call that issued to the disciples is the same call issued to us today. To follow and be fishers of men. To be a follower of Jesus is really exemplified in this passage. The call is emphatic. Follow me. Now the curious thing to me, and I apologize for bringing so much Greek into this, but it, it really intrigued me in looking at this text. Look at verse 19. Follow me is emphasized. It's emphatic. But in the Greek text, it's an adverb. Now at the risk of going to grammar, because you're thinking, I came to church, I didn't come to English class or Greek class. But follow with me. An adverb describes the action of a verb. Now, it's perfectly legitimate to translate it as a command, follow me. But if it's an adverb, then it's describing the action of the verb. So what's the verb? It's where Jesus says, I will make. I think we see here how Jesus makes fishers of men through those who follow him. What's the process he uses to make us fishers of men? That we follow him. You can't, you can't separate the two. Consider something about following Jesus. In this text, it is decisive. In verse 20, as well as in verse 22, there is a word that stands out by its repetition. Immediately, they left their nets. Verse 22, immediately they left their boat. Now, it's debated as to whether Jesus had interaction with these brothers, with Andrew and Peter and James and John beforehand, but whether he did or not, this is a decisive moment. This is that moment where you decide either I'm going to follow him or I'm not. And their response was immediate. There may be a process that leads you to this moment of decision where you have to decide either I'm going all in with Jesus or I'm not because there's no middle ground. I liken it to the, my days growing up in McMinn County 
When I was in high school, in the summers, we would often go over when we had the opportunity to Watts Bar Lake. I had a friend that owned a boat, and his dad had a cabin, and we would go on Saturdays and just have a great time. And one of the things that we liked to do, there were some cliffs at Watts Bar that you could climb up and then jump off. Okay, just it's the way it was. And I could remember, we're in the boat, we're going over the first time, we're going to jump off the cliffs. And we're teenage boys, we're 16, 17-year-olds, so you know what we're doing, we're talking. I'm going to jump off of them. Not only am I going to jump off of them, I'm going to do a half gainer with a twist, and I'm going to end in a cannonball. You just watch. Then we're talking, as we climb up the cliffs, I notice as we're climbing up, we're starting to get a little bit quieter. Because when we get to the top, it's a lot, lot further down than it looks from when you're down there. And you realize... There's no going back. If I make the decision to jump, this is not a Bugs Bunny cartoon. I am not climbing up air to get back up here. So it is with following Christ. There comes a point you decide, I'm either a follower of Jesus and I've jumped or I'm not. By the way, I did jump. What do you do? That's the call. No middle ground. In fact, Jesus warns us in Revelation that God detests this idea of thinking, I can be part Christian and not Christian at the same time. He says to the church, either you're hot or you're cold. Be one or the other, otherwise I'm going to vomit you out of my mouth. Jesus is issuing this call that says, be all in. So a follower of Jesus has made that decisive, that decisive decision to follow him. Have you made that? Have you decided, I'm all in, there's no middle ground? And a follower of Jesus, once he does that, commits to learn from Jesus. That's the second mark of a follower. Notice where he emphasizes, follow me. That is the idea of apprenticeship. Follow to learn from Christ. When Jesus called these disciples, they were entering into training on how to be followers. On how to accomplish this task. Because notice where this passage is put in. Notice verse 19. From that time, Jesus began preaching, repent for the kingdom of heaven's at hand. Okay, he's preaching. Then he goes in and he calls these disciples. Now, look at verse 23. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in the synagogues and proclaiming the gospel. That's preaching. Preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and affliction among the people. He's preaching, he calls, and he goes back to preaching. You know what he's doing? He's saying, guys, as you follow me, you're entering into an apprenticeship so the work will continue even after I've ascended into heaven. And the same practice happens today. To be a follower of Jesus is to have a teachable spirit where you learn what it means to be like Christ. Do that in two ways. One, individually. We dive into the Word. How do we know what Jesus would do, what He would have us say? We get into the Word. We say, teach me, Lord. This is the Word of God. And He speaks to us in it to say, this is the way, follow me. But here's the second thing that we often omit. We learn how to follow Jesus by being involved in the body of Christ. Now follow me. Follow me in this. Jesus is not here physically that we can look to him and have an example but his body is here isn't it the body of Christ as we are engaged in the body of Christ the church we are learning what it means to be followers of Jesus we are encouraging one another we're learning from each other that's following Christ it's being plugged in to his body 
So a follower of Jesus makes the decisive decision, the decisive choice. I'm all in. They, they come with a teachable spirit following Christ by seeking Him in His Word and being involved in the body of believers. And to follow Jesus means there's a separation. Notice it's emphasized that both of them left their nets. They left their nets. Now think about what they're doing. These four men, Peter, Andrew, James, and John, just became unemployed the minute they left their nets. Follow Jesus, I'm leaving my job, I'm following him. Their security. They separated themselves from everything for the sake of following the gospel. Because now it was no longer their jobs that defined their life, it was Jesus. It was no longer their family relationships that defined their life, it was Jesus. It was no longer the things of this world that defined their life, it was Jesus. We live our lives letting other things define our actions and determine what we are to do. We define ourselves by our jobs. We define ourselves by our family. We even define ourselves by death, thinking, I may not be here much longer. I need to make decisions based upon that. To be a follower of Christ says, it is Jesus who is the standard for what I decide to do. I follow Him. And Jesus calls that we follow Him with allegiance. He is not an addition to our lives. That's the totality of the call. 1949, Billy Graham began his campaign in Los Angeles. The Lord blessed it tremendously. Thousands came. It extended to six weeks under a tent filled to overflow every night. People began traveling in to hear this evangelist, to hear the words that he was preaching. Well, one man who became curious about this Billy Graham and wanted to be a part of all the stars was a very odd man by the name of Mickey Cohen. Mickey Cohen was a gangster. Thank Godfather. He was instrumental in the founding of Las Vegas. He was a man that had his hands in the underworld up to his elbows. But he wanted to find out about Billy Graham, so he arranged for Billy Graham to be picked up one night after the crusade. Car pulls up, the door opens, Billy Graham gets in. And Mickey Cohen's seated in the back seat, and they began a conversation. Billy Graham witnessed to him. Come to faith. Mickey Cohen was intrigued. He said, I like what you're saying. In fact, I think I will become a Christian. Won't that be amazing, a Christian gangster? Billy Graham said, Mr. Cohen, you don't understand. To follow Christ means you turn from those things. You can't continue doing what you're doing and follow Jesus. Mickey Cohen said, why not? There are Christian teachers, Christian movie stars. Why can't there be a Christian gangster? Billy Graham was emphatic. No, can't, you can't follow Christ and do those things. Until Mickey Cohen ordered the car to pull over and dropped Billy Graham off, never professing faith in Jesus. I wonder if in some ways we're like Mickey. Mickey Cohen. We may not be that overt about it, but we still say, well, I just want to add Jesus to my life and ask Him to bless everything else that's going on. Where the call to follow Christ is one to separate from those things that would slow us down. You see, when we follow Jesus, there's a rearranging of priorities. You see this most clearly with James and John. Look at verse 21. They're in the boat. They're mending their nets, but look who's with them. Their father. 
And look at verse 22. Immediately they left the boat and their father. The call to follow Jesus rearranged their priorities. They left their parents. I think this is part of the gospel call that we don't think about a lot. Some of you may have encountered that. More than likely, most of us haven't. But we need to understand the ramifications of following Jesus means doing so even when it may put us at odds with those closest in our lives. There's a gentleman by the name of Nabil Qureshi. He grew up as an Islam, a Muslim, follower of Islam. Grew up here in the United States. His father was a member of the U.S. Navy. Nabil converted to Christ. He details his story to faith in his book, Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus. And I thought, I, I want to share that with this congregation. But then I thought, well, no, his testimony is so powerful. I want to do something a little different. I want you to hear it from him. This is part of his testimony that was given at a church about three years ago. So if you'll begin that now, Kelsey, this is Nabil Qureshi speaking and telling his story of how his faith caused him to make some difficult decisions. Her whole reputation, her whole life's value was in serving the mosque and in preaching Islam. She was the daughter and granddaughter of missionaries. And in an honor and shame culture, for your son to become a Christian, your only son to become a Christian is worse than if, if he had died. And so, can I do that to my mom? It's not just a matter of me, right? I know my reputation is going to go down the tubes, but forget that. My mom and my dad, who've done nothing but sacrificed everything they had for me, can I do this to them? And so, you're wrestling with all this, and I was just crying, and I, I said, I said, forget it, I'm not going to school. I went back to my apartment, and I put the Bible and the Quran in front of me. And I said, God, I need your comfort. And so I opened the Quran, and I started looking for verses of comfort. And for the first time, I realized that there is not a single verse in the Quran designed to comfort a hurting man. Now, there's verses that say, if you repent, God will forgive you and stuff like that. But nothing that says, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Nothing that reaches the heart. And so I put the Quran away. I said, this book doesn't apply to my life. And I opened up the Bible. And I said, I don't know where to turn. Uh, I know Christians read the New Testament, so I'll go to Matthew chapter 1. Saw so it was a bunch of genealogies, so I skipped it. I was a Muslim. I had an excuse. Skipped it. Didn't take me long to get to Matthew chapter 5, and this is what it says. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. And I thought, this is exactly what I just prayed. God put this verse in here for me. I mean, you guys can read it if you want, but it's my verse. <laughs> and I was like, this is amazing. And as I read it, it was like it was electric, and it jumped off the page and kick-started my heart. And I was like, who is this God? And I read the next verse. It says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. And I'm thinking, I hunger and thirst for righteousness. I'm not righteous. Every time I try to be righteous, I fall, I sin. But you're telling me just that I hunger and thirst for righteousness means I'm blessed? What kind of God is this? Then I start reading through the scripture, not trying to tear it down as I always had, but actually to receive what it had to say. I encountered an unconditionally loving father. 
And I thought, this is amazing. And I didn't want to miss a thing, so I was reading every single footnote. And I would ask God a question. I'd be like, God, how do I know you're even hearing me right now? And I'd read the footnote. If you want to know God can hear you, go to 1 John 3. Thanks. Boom. 1 John 3. And I start reading, and I'm going back and forth every single footnote. It takes me a while to get from Matthew 5 to Matthew 10. But when I finally get to Matthew 10, this is what I find. He who proclaims me before the people of this world, I will proclaim before my Father in heaven. And he who denies me before the people of this world, I will deny before my Father in heaven. You see, I had all the evidence. The evidence was solid. I had the spiritual guidance, dreams and visions. I had the emotional guidance. But I had not proclaimed because I knew it would cost me my family. But as if God knew what I was thinking, the next verses say this. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And I was thinking, okay, God, I get it. If I really love my parents, I will proclaim you to them because you are the truth. But it's not just my parents. It's my entire life, the whole Islamic community, all my friends, everything that I've planned, it's all going to go. You know what the next verses say? He who loses his life for my sake will find it. Matthew 10, crazy convicting. So I bowed my knee, and I prayed. Well, no one had told me about a sinner's prayer. I'd been with David for four years. No one told me about a sinner's prayer. Uh, but I prayed. I gave my life to Christ in that moment. And um, even though I assented in that moment to the gospel, I think I actually understood it a few days later when I had seen my father cry for the first time in my life. When he found out what had happened, he said these words to me, Nabil, today I feel as if my backbone has been ripped out from inside me. You have to understand, my dad is like this pillar of strength in my mind. He's the warrior. He goes out and fights for the country. I'm the guy who made him cry. And my mom, if you had met her up until that moment, she had always been full of life, gregarious, hospitable, welcoming people in, feeding them. There was always a light shining in her eyes, and in that moment, it was as if I reached into her soul and turned that light off. And she has never been the same. And when they left, I just crumbled to the ground, and I just started crying. And I'm saying to God, why didn't you kill me? Because I'm thinking in my mind, if you'd killed me the moment I believed, I would have been in heaven, I'd have been happy, my parents wouldn't have known. They'd have been happy. I'd be worshiping you. You'd be happy. We'd all be happy if you'd killed me the moment I believed. And so I'm rocking back and forth and saying, why didn't you kill me? Why didn't you kill me? And I don't know where your theology stands. I'm just here to testify to what happened in my life. As I'm saying, why didn't you kill me? Why didn't you kill me? I heard these words because this is not about you. And it was like I was rooted to the ground. I could not move for 10 minutes. I was stuck in place. We'll stop there. His testimony is very poignant. It's not about you. What makes his story even more poignant is this. In 2017, he died of pancreatic cancer. But you know what? He is with the Lord. But the cost of following Christ calls for the separation to love Christ above all. 
That's to follow him. But look what he says. I will make you fishers of men. He has called us to follow him for a purpose. And Jesus takes this, this trade that is so familiar. And he says, you've got a purpose. James, John, Peter, Andrew. It's not just a fish for things that will satisfy for a moment. You're to engage in seeking those that do not know me. And the call comes out to us today to do the same thing. You know what struck me as I prepared this week? Is the unity in verse 19. Follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And the conviction hit my heart. If I'm following Jesus, but I'm not fishing for men, if I'm not witnessing, then either Jesus has failed and he's not making me into a fisherman. No, that can't be the case. Or I'm not really following him. Because he said, follow me and I'll make you this. And he doesn't fail. So it became a gauge for me. What does my life, specifically my witnessing, reveal about my followership of Jesus? That's why I'm challenging us as a congregation to step forward and to be focused in sharing the gospel. Take your bookmark out. Now, no one's looking over your shoulder. This is between you and God at this point. We are beginning a campaign entitled, Who's Your One? Remember, focused. We want to see all come to faith. But let's start by being focused. We're going to be joining with other Southern Baptist churches. With every believer asking, who's the one person in my life that the Lord has laid on my heart to be a witness for, a witness to? From now till Easter, we're going to be emphasizing this. Who's your one? Who are you reaching out to? And what I want to ask you to do is this. There are two places on this card for you to write the name of that person. You can just write their first name. You know who it is. I want you to write their name on the portion that it says, who's your one, the name, then there's a list of Bible verses next to day one, two, three, four, all the way through day 30. We're a little over 30 days away from Easter. What we're asking you to do is to pray the passage by day one starting tomorrow for that person. The passage tomorrow is John 14, 6. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So what you're going to do is take that person's name and say, Lord, Mark needs to know that you're the only way, the only truth, and the only light. Bring Mark to the Father and pray for them. And then do that each day for 30 days. With this commitment in mind, the goal is for you to share the gospel with them. The minimum would be just inviting them to come to church on Easter Sunday. That would be great. But our ultimate goal is for you to share the gospel. Here's part two of this. You'll notice there's another place for you to write their name. What we want to ask you to do is to write their name down and then just tear that part of the card off. 
just the first name. Just a few minutes after I lead in a prayer, we're going to stand and begin singing. There are two crosses here at the front. At the foot of each cross is a basket. During the invitation, if you're willing to say, Lord, use me to reach this person, my one, with the gospel. I want you to come down during the invitation and just place your card in the basket. What we are going to do is this. We are going to begin a focused time of prayer Every Sunday night, there's a prayer group that meets. The first names of the people you turn in are going to be given to them. On Wednesday nights, we will pray for these people by name. And we're going to pray they will be born again. We're going to pray for the Holy Spirit of God to move. Church, if we want to see revival and spiritual awakening, it will begin as we seek God and as we say, Lord, I don't want to be just a name only. I want to be a follower and a fisher. I want to see people saved. So right now, begin writing that name. And in just a moment, if you're serious about it and are willing to commit, I'm going to call you to come during the invitation and just place these in the basket. Let's bow our heads now. Father, the fact you would call us and use us is amazing in and of itself. Because, Lord, if you don't work in our lives, we can't accomplish anything. But Lord, we believe you have called us to be your follower and to be fishers. Those two go together. So Father, help us. Right now, I pray that you would stir our hearts with the name of a friend, a family member, a co-worker. Someone that to our knowledge does not know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Father, impress that person upon our hearts. Right now, Lord, let that person, the, their face come to our minds. And Lord, as we write these names down, we are committing to you, Lord, our desire to see them saved. So, Father, stir our hearts to enter into the battle. Stir our hearts, Father, to enter into the war for a person's soul that we would pray and that we would tell. And Lord, I believe you're going to do great things. I believe, Father, we're going to see men and women and teenagers saved as we seek you. So, Father, do this for your glory because that's what it's about. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand, and as we begin singing, you just come. There's no order. Come and place the names in the basket, and we'll see God do great things.
didn't get a chance to drop your name in, you could do that when we're done. Now, here's the thing. This is not just a one Sunday and then we're done. This is a commitment that over the next six weeks, we're going to be praying. We're going to be seeking opportunities to share. We're going to encourage one another in this. The next few Sundays, we're going to be hearing who's your one. Encourage one another. Pray. Gather together with people when you can and say, my person's name is Chris. Will you pray for Chris? My person's name is Jim. Let's pray for Jim. And come together and let's see what God will do as we become serious about seeing people saved. So we're going to be coming back to this. Pray for them. You've got that bookmark. Hold on to that and lift them up before the throne and keep praying. And God's going to do mighty things. I believe that. I want to invite our ushers to come. John Lowe is our deacon of the week. I'm going to ask John to lead us in prayer. And we're going to worship God in giving right now.